Welcome back, history fans. We have another history podcast. This is coming at you, World History. This is going to be World War One, and in this podcast, it's probably going to be split up into at least one other podcast, but who knows, maybe we'll even stretch it out to three. We're going to be covering mostly the early causes of World War One, and specifically all of the weapons and stuff of World War One. So, uh, let's get going here. So, if you remember, our last unit was imperialism, and definition time for you is the forceful extension of a nation's authority by territorial conquest, establishing economic and political domination of other nations that are not its own colonies. This should sound very familiar, because that was our entire last unit. Now, let's apply all this to World War I, because everything from our last unit was kind of building up to World War I, and now we're finally here. So, imperialism. By 1910... Most colonies, which, you know, that's the whole imperialism, grabbing colonies, taking over land that isn't yours kind of thing, and we take them over for different reasons, including economic, militaristic, nationalistic, uh, and humanitarian. So most of the areas have already been taken over. Um, You know, Africa still had some areas, but uh, for the most part, everything was taken. And Germany was very envious of France and Britain. Because remember, Germany's a brand new country formed a la... Prussia and Count Otto von Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm the First. So, anyhow, we have a jealous Germany in one corner. Now, we also have this other policy going on at the same time called militarism. And definition of it is um, policy involved uh, aggressively building up a nation's armed forces in preparation for war and giving the military more authority over the government and foreign policy. So what it comes down to is all of Europe at this time was building brand new weapons, warships, and expanding their armed forces. And the the military is kind of pushing the government to do different things. Um, Now, building on this, and once again going along with our past units, nationalism, remember, is the unique cultural identity of a people based on common language, religion, and national symbols. So this is also pushing us towards war. Uh, For Two basic reasons. One, uh, countries with great power acted in their best national interests. Um, And basically, if another country's interests went against theirs, well, their way is the best way. Your way is the wrong way. So guess we're going to have to go to war. Um, The other part of it is um, we see this nationalism within countries. So all these countries have, well, not all of them, but there's some of them that have these diverse ethnic populations. Now, we already talked about Germanization, how they wanted to kind of kick out anyone who wasn't Germany, uh, from Germany, sorry, um, or ethnic German. Uh, But Austria-Hungary was also having this, uh, because Austria-Hungary, which we're going to talk about a little bit more as we go on with World War I, they had Hungarians, they had German-speaking Austrians, governed millions of Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, and other people that sought self-government. Also, they had Italians, Romanians, and Serbs who wished to join their compatriots in neighboring lands. So what it comes down to is we have all these different people that all kind of don't feel a part of the same country, so we have internal turmoil. Um, also, we have Poles in Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary that wanted to reunite and build an independent Poland, because Poland wasn't quite a country at this time. And this longing for ethnic minority, minority independence often would lead to internal strife and violence. And we'll see that a little bit later on as we keep going here. So when it all comes down to it, all of Europe was just this giant powder keg, or a powder keg is kind of like a, like a bomb almost. And it basically means it's this charged atmosphere ready to ignite. So there's this giant bomb sitting in the middle of Europe, essentially, metaphor. And this 
a one little spark could just light the fuse and this big bomb goes boom and everyone goes into war. Um, so um, just to you know, kind of give you an idea of all this, there's these tensions are up and all these countries start building up armies. Um, so uh, tension's high, we have a buildup of arms, and we start to see this thing called conscription. And conscription is a military draft, also known as mandatory military service. So all these countries, they're forcing um, usually young men into the military. So during this time, European armies doubled from 1890 to 1914. The 1914 is when the war starts. So Russia had 1.3 million troops. Germany, uh, 900,000. France, 900,000. Um, Britain, Italy, Austria, Hungary all had between 250,000 and 500,000. So um, just to kind of give you an idea of the buildup here. So like I said, there's this powder keg. All of Europe is just ready and to fight and so forth. There's angry people everywhere. And it's going to go boom soon. Well, that little spark that we had referenced earlier, it all came with uh, the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand. So, um, anyhow, June 28, 1914, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, who was heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, and his wife, Sophie, were visiting uh, Sarajevo, uh, Bosnia here. And many people there were upset by the Austria-Hungary rule. So this guy wasn't exactly popular. So as he goes there, there's a terrorist group uh, known as the Black Hand, and they want to assassinate him, and they're from Serbia. So they, they see him driving by in his car. He's going to, to give a speech, and so he's moving pretty fast, and the, you know, the, all the areas are pretty kind of narrow um, as far as like the, the driving area here. So there's a guy who's standing on a bridge, and he threw a grenade. And the grenade hit the car, kind of like bounced off, and actually blew up behind Archduke Francis Ferdinand's car. And it, you know, it essentially it missed and it injured two other people. Well, the guy who threw the grenade jumped off the bridge uh, that he was standing on and tried to jump into some water and swim away. Well, that water was pretty shallow, so he broke both of his legs and they pretty much beat him to death. All right, so Archduke was un the Archduke was unfazed by this, and he continued on his day, gave his speech. Well, when he was done with his speech, on his way back home, uh, you know, there's a couple different variations of this, but for the most part, his driver got a little turned around and got stuck in a narrow dead-end alley, and it was pretty much in the exact same place that the attempt on the Archduke Francis Ferdinand's life was earlier that day. So when they were turning around and stuff, one of the guys who had tried to kill him earlier, a young Bosnian named Gavrilo Princip, um, saw them and shot and killed them. Uh, the Archduke, that is. So the Archduke's last words reportedly were Sophia, which was his wife. Um, she died as well. And so this is where the whole war begins. So there was a lot of alliances or like countries that were friends with one another. So Germany and Austria-Hungary were kind of friends here. And Germany had told Austria-Hungary, look, I will help you no matter what. Um, on the flip side, Russia was friends with Serbia. So here's our first alliances. So anyhow, the war should have just been between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. So Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. Okay, one versus one. This is a nice, fair fight. Well, Serbia's like, well, we're kind of a tiny country. So they call in their big, bad friends, Russia. So now it is Russia and Serbia versus Austria-Hungary. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Germany told Austria-Hungary to help out. Austria-Hungary says, hey, why don't you help us out? So now it is Austria-Hungary and Germany versus Serbia and Russia. Well, 
then Austria-Hungary and Germany decide that they want another friend, so they grab Italy. Well, Serbia and Russia decide they want another friend, so they grab in France. So now it's kind of three versus three. And in the process, early on in the war, Germany decided to attack France. Well, in, the, in, in, in getting to France, they marched across Belgium. Belgium was a neutral country, and they were friends with Britain. So when you mess with Belgium, you really mess with Great Britain. So now Great Britain is angry. So if you're keeping track here at home, it's Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary, uh, Germany, Italy versus Serbia, Russia, France, and Great Britain. And don't worry, the United States will be in there a little bit later, more towards the end of the show. So, anyhow, these are... Now, even though I talked about Serbia and stuff, the main people that are fighting this war um, are going to be the Triple Alliance, which is the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy, versus the Triple Entente, which is like the Allied Powers. It, uh, Entente means agreement, and that is France, Great Britain, and Russia. Now, there's many more other countries here that are involved, but these are the three, the Triple Alliance, the Triple Entente. For test-wise, those are the ones I'd want you to know. So, now when this war all started, everyone thought, ah, this will be so fast, you know, this, this war is going to be over really, really quick, no one's going to be out there for very long. Well, it became a stalemate, and one of the reasons was because of some of the new ways of fighting, including trench warfare, which we'll get into a ton of that as we go on. So let's, let's start talking now about this new modern warfare, ah, video game reference, anyhow. So, um, the first weapon we're going to talk about are machine guns, which are seen as a signature trench warfare weapon. And these were generally elite units that controlled these guns. They were very specialized. Usually it was an eight-man team um, that carried these very heavy guns. Um, they, you know, it, was, it was difficult to operate as far as um, the movement of everything, the maintenance of everything, and then just the supply of everything. And just to give you an idea, one of the most famous um, World War I uh, machine guns or most popular ones was the Vickers machine gun. Uh, the gun itself weighed between 24 and 30 pounds. The tripod that the gun sat on, uh, 40 to 50 pounds. Ammo boxes were 22 pounds each. So depending on how many you wanted to carry, because this thing's going to fire a fair amount, which I'll get into in just a second. Um, also, you had to carry around 4.3 liters of water with you all the time. The reason for the water is the more you fired this gun, it would heat up, and the barrel would start to get pretty warm. Well, if it got too warm, it could warp. Think of it like putting um, like plastic Tupperware in your um, dishwasher. If it's too hot a water, it could like melt it and warp it. Um, so that's why you had the water. And it could fire somewhere between 450 and 600 rounds per minute. So just uh, if you're doing the math there, that's around 10 rounds or 10 bullets every second. So needless to say, this was a pretty devastating, um, uh, devastating weapon. And uh, the best place to kind of aim at it is, like, and when people are running at you, that's not how you would fire. You would kind of wait and try to get them from the angle, um, and that was the, the best way to, to stand to hit people with them. So, um, another one we're going to talk about is gas warfare. So, um, you know, with all this new technology and, you know, new war and so forth, we see um, people use different gas. Now, they could use it as a disabling gas like tear gas or... Um, a gas that would kill people if they inhaled it, when that would be like a phosphine gas. Um, now, overall, in the war, only 4% of all deaths of World War I were attributed to gas, but um, it was like one of those things that was like the greatest fear of all the soldiers. Think of it um, kind of like 
Um, you know, there's very, very few people that actually die on planes every year. More people die in cars, but people have that irrational fear of flying because they think they're, you know, going to die. It's like this huge fear. Well, people were so scared of gas, but you're more likely to die from, like, a bullet, for example. Um, and, you know, there was huge amounts of gas that was used during this time. Um, and as far as, like, countries that got hit the hardest with gas, um, Russia actually had the most fatal um, exposures to gas. Um, they had 56,000 troops that died from gas exposure and 419,340 people that were uh, non-fatally injured by it. The next closest country would have been Germany, who had 9,000 fatal deaths versus and 200,000 non-fatal um, injuries. So why the big difference? And, um, and part of that has to do with the amount of um, safety procedures that the, the Russians had or just access to safety equipment. They, they didn't have gas masks is what it comes down to. So um, anyhow, um, moving on, let's talk a little bit more individually gas here. Now, we mentioned tear gas, and I said that it was kind of like disabling. Well, it causes tears, pain, and temporary blindness. Uh, Hitler was even temporarily blinded by tear gas during World War One. And uh, it actually made him so um, afraid of it that he did not want to use gas in war during World War II. Um, and tear gas was used very extensively during all of World War I. The other gas is chlorine gas we're going to talk about, or I'll talk about a few more, I guess. But uh, it damages the lungs, nose, throat, and eyes. It can cause asphyxiation, which means like suffocation if inhaled. It's a very heavy gas, so it would actually lie low in trenches or in low spots. So soldiers could, like, fall into these low spots. If there was too much gas in there, they would never come out. Um, it was water-soluble, so a damp cloth um, was at least a decent bit of protection. Um, you know, it, it didn't help the best, and some people even felt that uh, using urine might be helpful. It was not really, though. Um, and usually when it was seen, it was a green cloud on the horizon that was coming for you. Um, overall, it was not very effective effective, like fatal-wise, but once again, it was psychologically terrifying um, to the troops. Um, another one, uh, gas would be mustard gas, and go figure, it was yellow, henceforth the name, and the weird thing about this one is it would take 4 to 24 hours to take effect, so like you could, you could be exposed to it and think you're okay, and then like all of a sudden you start developing these deep, itchy, burning blisters wherever the gas was exposed to the, uh, the skin, and if it was inhaled, then that would be on the inside of your body uh, and your lungs. And if you were exposed to 50% or more um, of the gas to your body, uh, it was pretty much you were going to die. Um, and just to kind of give you a, a couple other things, and my pronunciation here is going to be terrible, uh, sometimes you'll see tear gas or referred to as lacrimatory, L-A-C-H-R-Y-M-A-T-O-R-Y. Yep, that's it. Um, and the other one, visicant. Uh, V-E-S-I-C-A-N-T, uh, also known as like a blistering agent, kind of like a mustard gas. All right, so let's start uh, talking about some things that go boom. Uh, for example, mortars. Uh, mortars effectively lobbed um, shells in a very high arc over a semi-short distance. Uh, just think of it as a grenade lobber kind of thing. And these were generally used for harassing forward trenches, which, like I said, we'll go into trenches a little bit more, um, cutting like wire or barbed wire in preparation for raids or attacks, uh, destroying dugouts, which kind of goes along with trenches. Um, and just to give you an idea of how many were used, um, in 1914, the British had fired around 545 mortar shells, 
1916, they had fired over 6.5 million. That is roughly 227 times the amount of seats that are in Bowling Green State University Stadium. Um, pretty amazing when you think about that kind of numbering. Um, in kind of building off mortars, I always think of these as big mortars, um, our artillery, um, also known as batteries. Sometimes you'll hear like, you know, war movies are like, fire the forward batteries. Uh, and a battery is any, uh, or artillery is any engine used to discharge of a large projectile in war. Um, and infantry rarely did well without having artillery as a backup. So, um, you know, the, there's kind of two types of these artillery batteries. Uh, there's the guns and cannons. I'm using those terms interchangeably here. They are very high velocity, but they have a flat trajectory. Um, so they just kind of fire very straight, but they're you know really fast. And then you got these howitzers, and they use these shells over a very high trajectory, um, so um, big time distance. And the thing that was interesting about these is they could have shells that could fire um, different types of um, I don't know, like high explosives for one. Um, another type of shell would be a fragmentation. So when it hits, it shatters into little pieces, and these pieces fly everywhere and cause lots of damage. At some point, they did use gas shells that when they land, they would spread poisonous gas or disabling gas. They had incendiaries, uh, which uh, spread fire uh, to area. And these howitzers um, generally weighed around 20 tons, just to give you an idea. And the largest of World War One that was actually in use was produced by the Germans, and it was named Big Bertha. And the diameter of the gun um, was 16.5 inches. Sometimes you hear guns measured in like millimeters. That's the diameter they're talking about. Yeah, this one was so big it was measured in inches. And it was built to be used on um, on like train rail uh, railways. So it had to be fitted to a railway for movement. And each shell weighed around 1,800 pounds, and it had a 1,000-man crew just to operate it. But it could fire at like 9.3 miles of distance, which is huge. All right, um, and now we're going to get into trench warfare, and we're going to start talking about trenches here. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here and pick up with trench warfare in the next part of this little podcast here. So I will be right 